Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. Father, in you alone we stand. Um, You're gracious. We are grateful for this opportunity. Uh, But Father, we just are amazed um, at your love that you have for us. And Father, I just pray this morning, ultimately, that you will be glorified. as you have been already, continue to be glorified through the reading um, of your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, Mercy Hill. For those of you who don't know, uh, we'll get the least important part out of the way initially, which is the introduction of who I am. So my name is Matt Beachy. Um, I'm a pastoral intern for Mercy Hill, um, have been for several years. Um, and so uh, it's a pleasure, it's an honor uh, to be able to bring the Word of God to you this morning. Um, and this morning, as you've been, if this is your first time uh, here with us, we've been walking through Romans uh, this year. We're going to continue to uh, walk through Romans this morning. And so today has us in the fifth chapter of Romans. We're going to start off reading um, in verse 6, and we're going to read through verse 11. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans 5, uh, and we'll get started in verse 6. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now will we be reconciled. Shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also receive rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray one more time. Father, this morning as we get into this, I just pray that uh, your word would go forth. Father, that you would stir the hearts, stir our hearts, stir our minds. Um, Father, uh, take our vision, um, our affections uh, towards yourself um, through your word this morning. Uh, Amen. Get that out of the way. So, uh, this morning, one of the things that I wanted to bring up is just a simple question. Uh, when Paul, as we read through this, Paul is going to make some arguments um, that are very big, they're heavy hitters, um, but I think one of the questions that um, I think is valid, not just for the time of Romans, uh, but also for us today, and that's the simple question of what is salvation? Uh, I bring that up because uh, it's what our hope is in. And so a a quick Google search of salvation brings up the following. 
Uh, it is a preservation or deliverance from harm. And then it gives another definition in a different context. It is uh, a deliverance from sin and its consequences believed by Christians to be, taught, uh, to be brought about by faith in Jesus. Uh, Google not completely off there. So what we will do, though, is what we want to talk about today is, is salvation. Um, Paul is going to bring up in his argument here um, what salvation is. He's going to talk about uh, why we are saved. He's going to talk about how we're saved. And he's going to talk sort of the implications of that salvation, how we are to respond since that. Uh, but in a review, what I'd like to do is just sort of catch everybody up to where we're at. So up to this point, uh, starting in, verse, in chapter 1, Paul is going to express, um, A, that there is a need for righteousness. Uh, there is a need for righteousness in order for us to be with, with the Lord in the end. And he spends plenty of time expressing that no one is righteous, that no one can be made righteous apart from Christ. Excuse me. And then he's spent time talking about how we're made righteous. And so in the last several chapters, we've talked about faith and that it is by faith alone in Christ alone that we are able to be made righteous. Excuse me. And now, as we've sort of gotten away or we move continually through his argument, uh, last week we talked about um, how faith is helpful, how it helps us persevere, um, what it produces, and ultimately it produces love and it produces hope for us as believers. And so today, what we are going to talk about and the argument that Paul is making today is uh, the single most tangible form um, of love in which we can refer to as believers, and that is uh, the atonement. And uh, Paul is, again explains uh, why God saves us, and he's going to show us how he does it, and he's going to show us the implications of that. Uh, but to set it all up, uh, before we continue on in that, I want to tell you a quick story of probably 16 years. I'm old. But here's the deal. Uh, when I was in high school, my sophomore year was the first year I ever played organized sport or organized basketball in high school. That year, uh, we did not make it to a state tournament. Instead, we went and we watched the state tournament. Now, so I back. So that year, Division II state champions were was a team called Dayton Dunbar. They, on their team, had um, a future NBA starter in Daquan Cook was a senior that year, and then another future NBA starter in Norris Cole, who would go on to win two uh, NBA titles in Miami with LeBron James. And then they also had another, was supposed to be a projected lottery pick uh, on that team. They won state championship that year for them. Great. While we were down there, our coach met with their coach and was like, hey, our two teams should play together, like against each other. And coach was like, yeah, awesome. And their coach was like, yeah, sure, why not? We'll just destroy you guys. So uh, my junior year then showed up. And wouldn't you know it, we made a trip to Dayton Dunbar. Um, where, again, uh, there was no chance. I'll just be very clear. Um, there was a gentleman by the name of Aaron Pogue who was the size of a house, um, who was headed, he was signed at USC already. This is early in the year. Um, 
the Norris Cole was already agreed to go to Cleveland State. And our best player that year uh, after he graduated went to Ohio Northern, which is a small Division II school to become a pharmacist. Uh, so that, the skill level was not there, right? And I say all this because there was no chance that we were going to win, right? Like, we believed that we could, but in all honesty, I mean, we showed up, and it, I mean, it was a great experience. We had a great time, but there was no chance. Now, I say all of that because in the face of certain defeat, for us as believers, and we shift it to what we're going to talk about today, for us as believers, we sit and, as Paul's expressed here, that while we were still weak, that while we were sinners, and that while we were enemies of God, we were destined uh, for destruction, God decided to make a way for us to be reconciled to him. In his sovereign will, he reconciled us to him. So in the same way, if we go back to this story of two basketball teams, it would have been like Dayton Dunbar saying, listen, we'll let you guys get the W today. And not just that, but we'll reconcile the relationship. Because we were trying as hard as we could, and honestly, I don't know that any of their players broke a sweat. It was night and day, the comparison. Right? But... It would have been as though they're saying where victory is assured for them, they're going to make a way so that both of us can can be victorious and we can be reconciled in terms of our relationship. Again, today what we are going to discuss is quite frankly, um, there's a lot of actual conversation about this section of scripture, um, but... I believe to be the most beautiful form of love that could be expressed. And what it's called, and I'm going to call it initially, and we're going to define it, but then we'll talk about it later, is what we call penal substitutionary atonement. People argue over this doctrine. Um, it's, It's the only way that makes sense. But basically, this doctrine is that Christ willingly gave himself up for us. He submitted to the Father He paid the penalty um, of our sin so that we could be saved and that we could be not only um, justified but also reconciled. You see in this section, it's the first time in Romans we have that. We'll get get to that later. Uh, But that not just that we may be made righteous, but that we can be reconciled back to Christ. You see, Christ paid the cost um, so that we could spend eternity with Him. The love of God is so great and so beautiful that in the Lord's sovereign will he was able to display the greatness and the vastness of his love by sending his son for us. Now I think we don't understand or I think we oftentimes just say Jesus died for us and we don't think about what that actually means and what that actually looks like. It was the greatest single most the single most greatest act of love that any of us could ever experience and again it does multiple things it makes us innocent in front of god but it also repairs the relationship and we talk about reconciliation 
the entire thesis. So what I want to do is go back to the thesis of the epistle. And we find that in Romans 1. And it says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, the right, but a righteous man shall live by faith. You see, it is the power of God for our salvation. It's not your power, it's not my power. It is the power of God for our salvation. And it is His righteousness that is revealed. And it is through faith that we receive that righteousness. Today we're going to talk about why did He do it? Why did He save us? Um, how did He do it? And the ramifications for us. So why? The question typically that discovers a motivation or motive for somebody is the question why. Why does anybody do anything? Why do you do this? Why do you do that? You want to find the motive of somebody, you can ask that question. Uh, I think quite simply two, two, two answers to that question. Why did God save us? A, because we couldn't save ourselves. And B, because he loved us. So first, uh, we couldn't save ourselves. Paul says, for while we were still weak and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person, one would ever dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You see, there's nothing that we could have done to be made righteous with God on our own. Paul's made this abundantly clear throughout Romans up to this point that not the Gentile, not the Jew, not the Greek, not the Roman, nobody can do anything to make themselves righteous apart from God. Apart from faith in Jesus, actually, as he continues with his argument. Right? And so, the whole thing of us not being able to save ourselves is that Jesus ends up having to be our substitute. If we go back and we remember, if you remember in uh, Genesis when uh, Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai and he says he wants to see God. And what's the response that God has for him? Anybody remember that? He said, go hide and then I'll pass through the presence and then you can look upon like the things that have, been, that have seen my presence, right? And this happens and Paul sees it and he literally is glowing when he comes back down from the mountain, right? This is the righteousness of God that cannot be in the presence of unrighteousness. Does that make sense? We cannot, it, it is consuming the righteousness that God is. It is something that we ourselves cannot reach. We cannot attain it. It is fully and wholly through Christ that we can do this. And this is why God had to save us from us. As we are born into our sinful nature, right? Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our trespasses. Right? Dead people don't do anything. Dead people are dead. It is God who calls us out of it. It is us who, it is Jesus' substitute that is placed, his righteousness becomes placed upon us. You see, back in the old times, in the Old Testament, and I think Brother Matt talked about this last week, the, the Jewish ceremony of, excuse me, uh, sacrifices, right? And you had sacrifices that had to be made, and we had to continually do it. 
and to continually do it because the sacrifices weren't perfect, right? When Christ came for you and I, He lived a perfect life. He was sinless. He was without shame. He was without sin. He had no blemishes, right? He was both human and not. Right? We call that the, I think it's the hypostatic union. He was 100% human and 100% God. Right? This is why he was the perfect sacrifice. Because we couldn't do it of our own. And so God, in his sovereign wisdom, saw that this was the way for us to be with him. So that's the first part. Is that we couldn't do it ourselves, so he had to do it for us. Secondly, it was out of love. Again, Paul's argument here is that you would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person. This just meaning not either or, but both and, right? The whole argument is you wouldn't die for a good, righteous person. Yet while you were still a sinner, while you were an an enemy, of God. He sent his son to die for you. Right? Imagine that amount of love. That yet while you were still your affections were not turned towards him. In verse 9 they, it says enemies, it's not necessarily actively an enemy but more of a passive enemy meaning our affections are not towards one another. Right? We were estranged. So while we were still estranged from God, he loved you so much And he saw that the only way that we could ever be with him was for him to sacrifice his own son. It cannot be understated the vastness and the greatness of God and his love for you. Now, I don't know how many of you are fathers. I I have an almost two-year-old. There is 0% chance that I would ever sacrifice my son for an enemy of mine. Like, that's how much God, God loves us. He loves his people so much that while we were still estranged, we were alienated from him. He sent his son. I want to Read Ezekiel um, 16. You don't have to turn there if you want to. It's Ezekiel 16, and we're going to start uh, in verse 4. And this is uh, the prophet speaking to Jerusalem. And he says this, And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, and you were arbored on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you, and I saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed, and your hair had, uh, 
had grown yet, and you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you are at the age of love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made you vow to you, I made a vow to you and entered into covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. This is the imagery of what the Lord has done for his people. Titus 3, in verse, starting in verse 3, it says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, and led us, uh, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness of a lo- uh, and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercies, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. I'm going to continue to say this. It cannot be overstated how much God loves his people. It cannot be overstated. It can never truly be described. I don't believe that there are words in any language enough to describe the amount of love, the amount of love God has for his people. But one man once tried to. I think he probably did his best. Uh, I don't know. There's a hymn that was written by Friedrich Lehmann. Um, I don't know if any of you know this hymn. It's called The Love of God. Um, And I want to just read for you the imagery that he creates. Uh, I believe it's in the third verse. Um, It says this. It says, Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every tree on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. This is very intense imagery, but it is very accurate. We're just going to deepen it one more time. So according to Google, again, uh, there are 352 quintillion gallons um, of water in the ocean. There are 3.04 trillion trees on this earth. And since I was searching for how, much, like how do you measure the sky, um, some guy blog, some dude on the internet in some Reddit thread said that there are 12 billion uh, cubic sky miles. So I don't know how much a cubic sky mile is, but if you look to the sky, it is quite a bit. Right? Regardless of all of that, to, to fill that space in an attempt to describe the love of God would still render us unable. Psalms 103 says this, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove transgressions from us. As the Father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows your, our frame and he remembers 
that we are dust. He remembers that we are dust. Again, there are many implications that come from this. A couple things. First, brothers and sisters, I would implore you that if you are here today and you have not put your faith in Christ and received His grace, the invitation, brother or sister, at this point is now. There is such a love waiting for those who turn their affections towards God. I would implore you to do so. Secondly, brothers and sisters who are in Christ, what does this mean for us? It means we are to share this love with those around us. People all over the world are looking for love. And not just like a weird love, like true love. A never-ending and everlasting love. That love is to flow through us and into those around us. Take solid solitude and confidence in knowing that Jesus paid it all. While we were still lost, Christ died for us. Now, be very clear here. Um, we can have bad days or bad seasons where we don't feel a whole lot. Where we don't feel like, you know, anything. I, for one, have probably more bad days than good, to be quite honest with you. Um, But luckily, our salvation is not dependent upon how we feel. It does matter how we feel. But that doesn't change the truth. So if we're struggling, brothers and sisters, I would remind you to look to the cross. And I would remind you to take what it is you are feeling in prayer to the Lord. He wants relationship with us. Now, to be clear, some famous people would say something like, uh, God broke the law for love. Or, He bankrupt heaven for you. And I want to be clear, that is not in fact the case. The case is, your sin, my sin, cost this much. It cost Jesus his life. Which is how the salvation, how we are saved. Right? So, the atonement is that Jesus died an unjust death in our place so that we may be saved. We have to talk about, so when we talk about the atonement, it's obvious, like there are lots of people who argue about lots of different things. But to be very clear with you, this is uh, the most tangible showing or outpouring of love from the Father. Christ became our high priest when, we, when he uh, atoned for our sins on the cross. There was a penalty to pay for your sin, 
or a price to pay for your sin, my sin. Again, Christ willingly submitted himself to the Father to pay for that price. So there are a couple things then that this death means. First, it means that we are justified. It means that we are seen uh, legally standing right with God. When we put our faith in Christ, we are declared justified. Uh, Justification uh, is an antonym of the word condemnation, which means guilty. I want to be very clear. When I say that we are pronounced justified, it doesn't mean that we're not not guilty. It means we are pronounced innocent. It is not by anything that you have done, or it's not by anything that you have, uh, any works or anything you've done, but it is solely because of Christ being the substitute for our sin. When Christ died, two things happened. He imputed his righteousness onto us, or we are credited with his righteousness, and we credited him our sin. He died for your sin and for my sin. Imputation means to credit something or be placed upon. Our sin was placed or credited to him while he gave us his righteousness. He paid the debt. And again, all of this to show you how much God loves you and loves his people. Right? If we read this in verse 9, therefore, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Our salvation is both here and now and also not yet. We are now justified. We have not yet been saved from his wrath when it comes. We will be, but it is not yet. In uh, Jewish tradition, so does anybody remember, know the story behind where we get the term scapegoat or where a scapegoat comes from? Right, so in Jewish tradition, on the Day of Atonement that was um, celebrated, they would take two uh, sacrifices, two, whether it was a, a lamb or a goat, and basically, the one would be, they would put or symbolically place the sins of the community onto that said goat um, or lamb and then cast it out, right? So the way we use the term scapegoat now, it's like, oh, like if somebody's going to take blame for something that isn't necessarily their problem, like they didn't really deserve to be thrown under the bus, Right, they're the scapegoat. That's what, and then the second was used for the actual sacrifice of atonement. It's still celebrated today. It's um, uh, Yom Kippur, I believe, is the, the the celebration of the Day of Atonement. Brothers and sisters, uh, none of that matters today in terms of whether or not traditionally we symbolically place anything onto a goat or onto a sheep or whatever you have it. Christ fulfilled um, the sacrifice that was required for our righteousness. By doing this, again, our sins were credited to him 
and his righteousness was credited to us when we put our faith in him. The grace and mercy of love and the love of God is indescribable. And Paul's also going to make the argument here that how much more now are we going to be saved when we're, not, when we're on his side? When our affections are towards one another, how much more are we going to be saved in the end if he sent his son to die for us while we were against him? Well, now that we have been reconciled, we've been justified, we are with him, how much more are we going to be saved when he does come? Our sin cost the Son of God his life, and he willingly gave it up for us. So Christ's death, again, it did not only justify us, but it reconciled us back to God. In verses 10, it says, verse, starting in verse 10, it says this, For if while we were enemies, we were, both, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his Son, by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Justification puts us um, legally standing well with God. Reconciliation puts us in a relationship with Him. So I think of um, peace treaties. When two people have been fighting, or even better, when siblings fight. Having three brothers, I know this, it's what I grew up doing. Mom can make us say sorry, right? She can end the fight. That doesn't always necessarily mean there's reconciliation right away. This is how much greater is the love of God then that we could ever experience that even when our enemy status is ended, it's not just a legal standing, but it's a relational standing. He takes sinners like you and I and he repaired our relationship. It is through Christ that we are assured our salvation. We sang this morning, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Now, this is our assurance. We have several things that we can look at. But again, the greatest assurance that we have is the cross. How much more um, now that we have a relationship with Christ will we be saved? It was God's it was by God's power, and it was his plan that while we were still alienated from him, that he would reconcile us to him. There is no longer hostility between God and those who believe. These implications are massive. Um, We are called to live in union with Christ. We are called to abide in Him. We are part of His body. We are His bride. When we have questions or when we don't feel things 
and I know it happens, um, we are to return to what we know to be true. Ephesians 1.13 says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it and the praise of his glory. Again, I would take you back to last week in, uh, in verse 5 when it says, And hope does not put, our shame, uh, does not put us to shame because God's uh, love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, it's the same Holy Spirit in verse 5 here that Paul's talking about that has been poured out to us by God, through God's love that is now in Ephesians written to a different group of people but it is the same Holy Spirit that then seals us to him. So we are secure in our salvation. That is our hope because he has just informed us that he has poured out his love for us. He has given us that Holy Spirit. And we know that that Holy Spirit is our seal. That is what is our assurance. But I will be 100% uh, transparent in this part of the message, which is not something I particularly enjoy doing. Um, But this is probably the biggest battle that I know for myself, is this idea of assurance because so often we get beaten down with well you are dead in trespasses there's nothing you could do to save yourself and those are true those are true but brothers and sisters our hope is at the cross our hope is that when we put our faith in Christ who was the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sin. Brothers and sisters, that we, our hope isn't that, well, I hope something good will happen. Our hope is that we know that when it does come, when the judgment of God is, is brought about, that we will be saved. It's not the hope that when a bunch of young men travel to Dayton Dunbar to play a bunch of grown men the hope that we can win this. There's no hope there. Like, we tried, but there's no hope. Brothers and sisters, our hope is in the cross. If you want tangible proof, tangible, like see it, feel it, proof of how much God loves you, just look at the cross. There's, you need nothing else. Imagine the one thing, so those of you who aren't parents, take the one thing that you love the most in this world. It's not even a percentage of how much God loves those who, his people, I don't know how to say it, right? It's not even close. It is infinity times more, infinity, whatever you want to, how much more that he loves those who have turned their affections toward him. And he's reconciled us. That cross has done the reconciliation that we could not do on our own. It has repaired. It has restored. Whatever word you want to put in there, the the relationship is now reconciled. 
It is healed. It is fixed. We can approach the Father because of the Son. Where, where before we, we had no affections toward Him, before we could do no right, the cross has brought us to Him. There is absolutely zero doubt how much God loves us. His people. And I say that, and I, and I, and I truly mean that. Brothers and sisters, we don't always feel that way, and I understand. I, I do understand. But we are to look to the cross. When we doubt, or when we have concern, you want to see it? Go to the cross. Romans eleven thirty six says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. He saved us. You didn't save yourself. He saved us. And I know that there are some people who will have conversations with me about the implications of that and whatever. It doesn't matter. Everything is from Him and it is through Him and it is to Him. We are a part of that. Those who believe, who have turned their affections toward Him, we are a part of that. As I was preparing... um, for this and speaking on something that is such a a battle personally for me uh, and wanting to shy away from the conversation of assurance or security um, one of my friends and I quoted I quote uh, said this to me Uh, he said truth don't depend on you comma homie it doesn't What I feel doesn't define what is true. We have been assured, and if we're going to believe the infallibility of the Word of God, that this is an inspired Scripture, then if we are going to believe that, then we have to believe that when we put our faith in Christ, that we have received that grace, that righteousness of the perfect Son, has been imputed, credited, placed upon us, then we have to be secure in knowing that when the wrath of God returns to this world, that we will be saved because we are in Him. We are to have a relationship with Him. It's not just, well, like, again, back to fighting with my brothers, I can't... Like, I can't, it's not just like, well, I'm not allowed to hit him anymore, but like, you know, whatever. It is the relationship has been reconciled. We're not just innocent and God's like, oh, shoot, like, I was really wishing not that one. We are, we are in relationship with him. We are fully reconciled. How much greater, now that we are reconciled to him, will we be saved when he saved us already before we were ever reconciled? How much greater now? Shall we be saved when he returns? That's the argument Paul's making here. While you were sinners, 
he saved you, how much now, how much more will you be saved now that you're reconciled back to him? We need to live in this truth. We need to rejoice in it. And we need to be confident. And we need to share it with people. We are to fellowship with him through his word and through prayer. It is all through Christ. It is grace that we receive through faith alone. You'll never do it on your own. You'll never be perfect. Again, the love of God cannot be explained, understated, overstated. There are no words to truly describe how much God loves you. Because while you, while I, while we were estranged, or strayed, excuse me, He sent His perfect and holy Son to die for you, for me, for those who believe. This is truly what the love of God is. That's what the cross means. When you look at the cross and you think of the atonement, that's what it is. It is the greatest display of affection that this world has ever or will ever see. So, as I wrap up here, I want to, I was, uh, as I was getting ready to put uh, ink to paper uh, for this sermon, I was struggling quite a bit um, with, with that. And one night I just sat down and started writing thoughts on the paper. And then I, in preparing, I went to my wife and I said, hey, what do you think? Would this be like good for an intro or good for an ending? And she was like, you should end with that. So if what I'm about to read to you upsets you, or you're like, why did he say that? She's right there. And <laughs> take it up with, with her. Um, but no, uh, I want to read you this, and then, and then we'll close. The beauty of the atonement, one will never describe. For while we were alienated from God, his love was greater than any man could ever express. A love so deep, no adjective uh, could be used to describe it. And a love so great, no unit of measure could ever measure it. For if a man or men were to attempt to do so, they would surely perish before describing but any sort of percentage. A love so pure and holy that to gaze upon it would render a man blind. A love so unwavering that even as a mother loves her son, could never compare. For God, in his infinite wisdom and mercy, and gracious, perfect love, sent his son to live the perfect and holy life, only to lay it down for sinners like you and I, so that one day we may be, we, uh, may be able to spend eternity with him. We stood in opposition to the holy God, ready to receive justice. The Son stepped in our place and became our substitute for you and I and stood us in the Lord's favor. The guarantee is that we are His, holy and fully. He saved us now, reconciled us to the Father, and He saved us in the future. 
when the Lord's wrath is passed out. For those of us who have put our faith in Christ, we live in joy knowing this truth. And for those who have not yet, the invitation is now and the time is now. Act, obey, and call upon your Heavenly Father who loves you. For Jesus paid the price for your reconciliation. Put your faith in Him so that you may also spend eternity with Him, the one who loves you more than you'll know. Uh, Worship team, you can come up. This um, closing, in, in closing, I would just ask you, brothers and sisters, are we living in the joy of knowing that we have been reconciled to the Father? I know sometimes it's really hard to feel joyous. Sometimes it's really hard to feel things. I would remind you that there's joy in the cross and there's joy in knowing that Jesus paid our sins so we can be reconciled to him. If you have not put your faith in Christ, I would ask you implore you, beg you to do so. Our salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this uh, day and and the word that you have, Father. Lord, your love is indescribable Um, even when we don't feel it Lord um, it's there your truth is truth your truth is there Um, and Lord I just pray that as we leave here today Father that we would leave with joy in our hearts that you have reconciled us to yourself through Jesus Christ We pray all these things in your name.